Hello, everyone. You are listening to Casual Wednesdays with Doom Rocket, your one-stop shop for comics, talk, and such. I'm Jared Jones. I am MJ Kramer. This week, it's a wild time for comics right now, and MJ and I are scrambling to keep up. <laughs> First on the docket this week is the insane comic creator exodus to the online platform Substack. Who's making the jump? What does it all mean? What does it all mean for comic shops? And what in the Sam Hill is going on, MJ? I don't know. And neither do I. But once all that hullabaloo is out of the way, we crack open our thoughts on James Gunn's The Suicide Squad with a spoiler-filled blast of comic movie chit-chat. Yeah. Also this week, our top five most anticipated issues, writers outside comics we'd like to see write some comics, and a quick flip-through review of DC's Batman 89, number one. There ain't no bat. Oh, yes, there is. <laughs> James Tynan just ain't writing him no more. <laughs> You're listening to Casual Wednesdays. Hello, MJ. Hi, Jared. I would say happy new comic book day to you, but we are recording late this week. We are. But happy belated new comic book day. Yeah. Yeah. Happy new comic book day for stores that got their books late, because a couple of them did this week. Yeah, I saw Challengers posting on Instagram that they didn't get any of their DC stock. Yeah, until Wednesday. Wow. And Gmart's Champagne store got their books late. A bunch of stores did. Some of them, it was just the DC books because it seems like Lunar didn't anticipate the fact that they were shipping all of the free comic book day books and that would slow everything down. <laughs> yeah, That's it what would. it seems like. It would happen the week of free comic book day, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of places doubled, if not tripled their orders. And double and tripled their workload. Exactly. In a very short period of time. Yes. In anticipation of this week's free comic book day. Well, Diamond knows how to handle free comic book day. They've been doing this for years now. They understand that this is a much larger amount of product than oh, comic yeah. book shops usually get. They send it like a month in advance for shops to count through, send in their damages, get damage replacements, all that stuff. Right. Lunar sent us our free comic book day merch the week of. <laughs> and when it was running late, I mean, we should have we should have seen that coming. Don't you think DC would have gotten in Lunar's grill and said, look, free comic book day is coming up. This is how it's usually done. No. Be prepared. No, DC doesn't care. DC yeah. doesn't care anymore. <laughs> anyway. So yes, hello everyone. Welcome back. It's Casual Wednesday. Sorry if you can hear the fans more loudly than usual. It's really fucking hot in this house. It's hot in Chicago right it's now. It's really hot and humid. Yeah. And we've been getting random severe thunderstorm warnings like Just twice a all, day. All day long. <laughs> Just all day long. Anyway, so here we are. MJ, we got a lot of news to talk about, and I really want to jump into it. But first, some light house cleaning before we get started this week. Of course. We are still looking for new listener questions. We haven't gotten any in a while. Uh-oh. I'm down to one. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. I sent out feelers for Suicide Squad questions, or Suicide Squad related questions for this week's episode. Yeah. Bupkis. Oh. No love for the Casual Wednesdays this week, I'm afraid. Bummer. So if you guys want to help us out, send us some questions. Otherwise, we got to get rid of the listener questions segment of the episode. What are we going to do without it? I guess we can make up our own questions. That sounds lazy, and it sounds like cheating. <laughs> so yes, new questions. Send them our way. Info at DoomRocket.com or Casuettes Podcast on Twitter. And you have our thanks. Also, send us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts. It's virtually the only way you can support us without telling people about us or sending us money. You could send us money if you want to do that. <laughs> just get in touch with me, Jared at DoomRocket.com. <laughs> but yeah, five-star review on Apple Podcasts, say something nice and or constructive, really helps us out. Yeah. All right. With that out of the way, MJ, let's just get into the news. There's too mm-hmm. much to talk about. First, I want to address something that I talked about last week, my general kvetching about Jason Todd, a.k.a. the Red Hood. Uh-huh. Why would Batman tolerate him? He's got guns. Why would Batman tolerate anyone with guns in Gotham City? Guns killed his parents, et cetera, et cetera. I guess that's not an issue anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the latest issue of Batman Urban Legends, which is ostensibly a Bat Family anthology series, yeah, yeah, addresses this directly. Jason Todd is a gun-toting maniac no more. 
He's just going to be a really sharp dagger-throwing maniac like everyone else. I guess. The way the Lord intended, MJ. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's surprising that it took this long to address it. They also announced that Tim Drake is bi in that issue. Never once is the word bi mentioned in the story, so Tim could just be queer, MJ. Well, I did see a little Twitter notification in my... You know how it'll tell you about mm-hmm. trending news topics? Right. And it said something about, this week in DC Comics, Robin experiments with his sexuality. Yeah, and it's that, like, wow, that sounds way dirtier <laughs> than it actually was. That's how Twitter phrased it. I thought that was really <laughs> funny, too. You know, as a guy who has followed Tim Drake since the very beginning, he was my first Robin, mm-hmm. technically. I have to say, I'm not all the way surprised by this turn of events. If you ever read... Tim Drake during, say, his Teen Titans run with Connor Kent, a.k.a. Superboy. There's something there. Well, it's funny. I was talking about this with a customer yesterday, and he also agreed. You could kind of see it coming because he loses his dad and his girlfriend and Connor Kent in fairly rapid succession. Yet Connor Kent is the only one he continually tries to bring back to life. That's true. (laughs) That is true. And when he died, he changed his entire costume to black, red, and yellow, which he said were... Connor's colors, Mm -hmm. black and red, Mm -hmm. which is technically true. Mm -hmm. Wasn't always the case. He used to wear a bitchin' leather jacket, but DC saw to that in the 90s, didn't they, MJ? That's true. That's true. Anyway, we digress. (laughs) Crazy Bat Family news. You never get enough of it. So, MJ, let's talk about the big matzo ball in the comics industry right now. Which also kind of counts as Bat Family news. Yeah, technically true. So, this week, led by James Tynan, a bombshell announcement that James and a whole host of other big-time comic book creators are jumping ship from the big two or work for higher contracts and going all-in on creator-owned for the most part, hopping over to the online platform Substack. And if you're already familiar with Substack, that's where a lot of these creators send out their weekly newsletters, Mm -hmm. such like that. Mm -hmm. Substack went all-in on these guys, dropping very lucrative cash deals with all these creators to jump over and provide exclusive content on this one platform. This is huge news for the industry, considering all the creators this entails. MJ, what's the roster so far? It was apparently spearheaded by Nick Spencer. We also have Jonathan Hickman involved, aforementioned James Tynan, right. Saladin Ahmed, Molly Ostertag, Chip Zdarsky now, and Scotty Young. Right. There's a few others as well. Scott Snyder's uh, Best Jacket Press is going to be over on Substack as well, right? Yes, but it seems like Snyder content is going to be more kind of like writing how-tos like it seems like his best jacket thing that he's doing with comiXology and dark horse that's where his comics are going to go oh gotcha. that's what it seems like all right if you want exclusive content from snyder you can get it from Substack, but his comics are still relegated to this huge comiXology deal that we talked about earlier from what i can tell yes okay understood so this is also a big deal in one regard concerning the bat family because james tynan announced that his Substack exclusive contract comes in direct defiance of his extension of an exclusive contract with DC Comics. Well, it also sounds like in an interview I read with him that it was just a matter of where to put his time. Yeah. Because the time that he's going to be using to make these Substack comics is just the time he would have been using on Batman and Joker. Right. But his contract with DC was up. He was thinking about signing back on for the three years that was going to have a lot of his Batman continuing in that. Right. And he decided that this Substack thing was a better deal for him. They're also keeping all of their IP rights and all of their publishing rights. So they can manipulate them any way they see fit, TV, movies, etc. And also put them in print, which uh, as comic book retailers, you and I are, this is the most concerning part of the announcement. It's like, I'm happy you're making your money, but what about the comic book stores that have been around and rely solely on printed materials? It's not like we have a bunch of iPads hooked up to the wall that people can read comics in the stores. It's funny you talk about reading via iPads. 
one thing that I don't really know how they're going to do is how exactly you're going to be reading these comics on Substack. I'm sure we'll be getting more information as it goes along. In a couple of the articles I read, it mentions that you can read them via like your web browser. And if you've ever tried to read comic books on an iPad or a laptop or anything, it's, it's not a really fun reading experience. It really isn't. I'm just wondering how the actual reading experience of it is going to look. That's really interesting that you bring that up because there are comic apps that are designed specifically for the reading experience. Comics mm-hmm. are made to accommodate the app. And one has to wonder, are these comics going to be made to accommodate Substack? Or is Substack going to have to create some sort of algorithm to make the reading experience for these specific comics, which vary from creator to creator? Mm-hmm. I mean, all this remains to be seen. It's all up in the air, MJ. Yeah. So let's talk about first the biggest impact, James leaving DC, leaving Batman, leaving Joker. He's not fully leaving DC. He's just leaving those two titles you mentioned. That's why I bring it up. All of his creator-owned series are still going to continue, which includes Nice House on the Lake, which is a DC publication. Includes Wind over at Boom and Something is Killing the Children and the upcoming Slaughterhouse with Tate Bromble. And also Department of Truth with Image. That's right. So all those books are going to remain. But James is going to have exclusive content on Substack, just like all these other creators. Chip Zdarsky just today announced that he was jumping ship as well. So ostensibly, creators are going to become content manufacturers all on their own. It's Mm kind of like the streaming wars thing that sprouted out all these streaming platforms. Instead of having cable, which is one flat fee, you're now paying that much plus more to get all the apps that you want to get all the content you want. It's going to kind of be like that with comic creators now. $75 is James's annual rate. I think that's the same for Zdarsky's as well. I'm not sure what Jonathan Hickman's is going to look like, but... It's going to start stacking up really quick, these comic book bills. 75 is less than people were paying when James was putting out two issues of Batman a month for their Batman subscription. That's a good point. But it is also more than you'd be paying for 12 issues of a $4 Batman comic. You said 60 is the price for 12 issues of a $5 Batman comic. Yeah, That's simple math. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's about the same price. The only thing is that while James is a great writer and he does have a lot of fans... A lot of people are buying and reading Batman because it's Batman. Yeah. Batman and Joker are two of DC's highest selling books. And we didn't mention it. He's leaving Batman with November's issue. And then he's leaving Joker with its April issue. But I don't think the sales of either of those two books are going to suffer that much. No, Batman and DC are going to be just fine. Yeah. The question is, how many people are going to be shelling out the annual rates or the monthly rates for these creators over at Substack? The further this goes along and the more creators Substack woos over to them with all these nice little deals that include a lot of money, before you know it, you're just subscribing to your creator as you would subscribe to Disney+, Plus, to Netflix, to HBO Max. It's going to stack up and you're just getting exclusive content from these people. I also do find it interesting that almost all of these creators announced with these Substack deals, they're all writers. Yeah, so far. When there was the original Image Comics exodus right. back in the 90s, they were all artists. That's right. It's just funny to think that all these writers are leaving. It's like, oh, I'm going to make comics here. It's like, but yeah, but who's drawing them? I don't think any of these writers, these are some high caliber writers, are going to have any problems with the money that they're going to have coming in through Substack employing awesome illustrators to draw their comics. I only hope that the all of Substack's being like, yes, you get to keep your IP and your publishing rights and all that stuff. I hope that extends to the artists as well. I hope so too. I don't want this to just be like all of these different writers just paying artists work for higher page rates and not giving them the residuals and all that stuff. Like, for instance, James Tynan's walking into Substack with a book already in tow with artist Michael Avon Emming, which is called Blue Book. Mm -hmm. This is exclusive to Substack, and this is how he's launching his own Substack channel. What are we calling this? Channel? Newsletter? Newsletter. 
Subscription? Subscription, let's call it that. And Chip Zdarsky has a book that he's writing and drawing, I believe, called Public Domain. He's also going to be bringing back Captar with Kagan McLeod, which actually is really cool. That's right. <laughs> now, the question is, when are these books going to get published? I mean, I know that Scott Snyder already has a deal set in stone with Dark Horse for his own comicsology books. That's a big deal unto its own. What about James's books? What about Hickman's books? What about Zadarsky's books? What about Scotty Young's books? Who's publishing all these books? Well, as far as physical publishing, James technically has a physical publishing company called Tiny, Tiny Onion. Onion. That's right. Yeah, so he can probably use the same printer he used for razor blades or something like that to print his own comics if he wanted to. That's true. I mean, he would have to expand a little bit to accommodate if this thing's as much a success as he's hoping it'll be. I guess he'd be doing an order system like he's been with razor blades, probably put out an early pre-order link for his subscribers, I would assume. Yeah. And I mean, that would probably work just fine for him. But not every creator has a printing press at the ready like James does. True. So. But I have a feeling a lot of them will want to eventually get things collected into a physical thing. Right. I'm and sure Dark Horse right now is rubbing their hands together and licking their lips like, yeah. Well, Dark Horse has for a while now been publishing physical copies of various things that have come out via either Kickstarter or Comixology. Right. So Dark Horse is probably very amenable to these things. But with Substack leaving them both the IP and the publishing rights, they can shop it around to whichever publisher they want. They can take it to Image. They can mm -hmm. take it if, if DC wants to keep on publishing more creator on <laughs> stuff like with nice house on the lake they that, could possibly yeah, do that that's something probably not gonna happen though <laughs> yeah chip zadarsky already said that keptar's images to turn down mm -hmm. keptar is probably the only example where there's an established property being brought in over to substack mm -hmm. i mean it's chip's book but it was established at image so if Image wants to continue publishing the trades, for example, I guess that's cool? I mean, they probably will, because mm -hmm. Image is fine with having someone like Michelle Fife publish Copra via Comixology digitally by issue, right. and then putting out the trade paperback afterward in physical. So one last question before we move on to the topic of the week this week, MJ. How do you think this is going to sit with the direct market? How do you think comic book store owners are going to handle this admittedly kind of chaotic transition into mostly digitally exclusive offerings from top tier creators well a lot of comic retailers are very grumpy old dudes uh-huh uh, they don't well, what like... about you, who's not a grumpy well, just, or an old I'm just or talk, a dude? I'm talking about in general. <laughs> um, they don't take to change really easily, and they don't like the possibility of you know readership moving to digital. So I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of mixed feelings right. amongst the greater amount of retailers. Yeah. Personally, I don't necessarily see this taking a lot of readership away from physical comic books from local comic shops, mm -hmm. because it's already been established after, I mean, how many years now of having a lot of comics be digital first and coming out later in print. The people that want to read digitally are going to read digitally. The people that want a physical comic are still going to want to read a physical comic. Like me. Yeah, or like me. <laughs> I don't really know that this is going to affect readership of regular comics very much, especially with most of all of these creators continuing on with the various physical comics that are already coming out, like Saladin Ahmed is staying on his Marvel stuff. Chip Zdarsky is staying on with Daredevil. And Scotty Young is going to continue to publish his image stuff. Right. Nick Spencer and Jonathan Hickman, maybe not, but they were already transitioning out of Marvel before this even got announced. That's right. Yeah, I'm with you for now. Yeah, I mean, there is always the possibility that people will decide they enjoy reading comics via a newsletter more than going to their comic shop but i i really think that 
getting your comics at the comic book shop, physically reading them. I think that's a different experience. And I, I don't think people are going to willingly give that up yet. Well, what about us, MJ? We who only promote in print comics in our solicits episodes, are we going to have to make an exception for all these creators going I mean, forward? Or are we going to wait until they actually announce books in print? We're talking about this news item. <laughs> yeah, but we're not pushing all the titles largely for the most part. True. I guess I guess we'll see when news drops. No, I guess you'll see. I'm sticking to my guns here. It you depend- either put it in print or I'm not talking about it. It depends how big the news is. It depends yeah. who the creators are. Right. But generally, we are going to stick to when something is solicited for print release. That's right. Visit your comic book store. Let them know that you exist. And speaking of which, MJ, talking about going to comic book stores, this week is Free Comic Book Day week. Yes. Uh, Free Comic Book Day is on Saturday. That's right. So if you do feel comfortable going to your local comic book shop, please feel free to do so. Pick up some new comics. Your local shop might be having signings or events. Do what you feel safe doing mm-hmm. in these times we're living in. Or give them a call and make a request for them to set aside certain books and do a curbside pickup. Yeah. There's yeah. a thought. Or order your stuff online, whatever you want to do. Just, you know, support your local comic book shop. Go and buy some stuff there while you're picking up your free books. And that's all we got to say about that. Mm-hmm. All right, MJ, let's move on to the topic of the week this week. James Gunn's Suicide Squad dropped in theaters and HBO Max Last Thursday, mm-hmm. it made a big splash critically. Financially, that's a completely different matter. A lot of people got freaked out about the Delta variant. Also, people were like, wait, is this a sequel? What is this? How does this exist? I don't know. And a lot of people just watch it on HBO Max, even though HBO Max is not equipped to handle the traffic, as we discovered. We decided to stay home and watch via HBO Max. We, were, right. we had bought our movie tickets like a couple weeks ago. Like a couple of good local patrons would. Yes. And we were excited about seeing it in the theater. It would have been our third movie outing since uh, the pandemic started. That's right. And we decided last minute, like, hey, we don't feel comfortable. We just going had to the Lollapalooza happen. Yeah. I so, love James Gunn, and I wanted to see this movie more than anything in, on an IMAX screen, preferably, but, you know, Chicago had to be an asshole about it. Yeah. So we decided to stay in. HBO Max's app was not exactly the greatest, it crashed on us five times. Five times watching the movie. HBO Max, what are you doing? And you would think that if they were doing this day and date release like they have been for a while now, that they would get it right. They would finesse it. They would fortify their servers or whatever they have to do. But they haven't yet. Mm -hmm. Maybe Christopher Nolan was right. It is the worst streaming service. (laughs) He's on to something. So let's talk about Suicide Squad. Let's talk about our first impressions first. Mm -hmm. All right. So how do you feel about Suicide Squad overall now that you've seen it? I enjoyed it. Yes. It's definitely in the very higher echelons of the DCEU films. It is. It's actually like a movie. Yeah, it's like, a, you remember movies? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of like protracted advertisements for the next movie. Mm-hmm. This was a movie unto itself because they probably weren't banking on a sequel. Could be, yeah. But I enjoyed it having a beginning, a middle, and an end. And despite confusion, yes, between it being a sequel or a reboot or... I know a lot of people who aren't necessarily plugged into the geek stuff right. who were like, wait, didn't they already make that movie? It's like, yes, yes, they did. But now it has a the at the beginning of it. Sure did. And a much better script. Uh, 
But it was very, very fun. It was very rated R. Yeah. And oh man, James Gunn had fun with his rated R rating. He sure did. I mean, this is a guy who hails from the trauma school of filmmaking, Mm -hmm. MJ. He made several trauma films with Lloyd Kaufman. He knows what it's like to make a movie without a tether. Mm -hmm. He also knows how to make a movie within the course of a very tight budget. So having James Gunn make a movie that costs like maybe $200 to make? Mm -hmm. It's the most violent superhero movie I've ever seen, I think. I think you should check out Punisher Warzone. No. I think, yeah. But also, this, this isn't necessarily a superhero movie. It's mm-hmm. like an anti-hero movie, as a yeah. Suicide Squad movie should be. But what were your first impressions, Jared? I know you have tons of thoughts. I certainly do. I will say that I'm with you. I think it's one of the best DCEU offerings, if we're still calling it that. I heard that we're referring to it now as Worlds of DC. Really? Why don't you just call it Elseworlds? The name's right there. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But I think this might be my favorite over Wonder Woman. Yeah. Wonder Woman has its problems, but it's a really solid movie overall. This is a solid movie. Yeah. It's got a fractious narrative. It's broken up in chapters, which are delineated by these really clever title cards Mm -hmm. that take place within the action. A lot of them are done practically, which I thought was brilliant. Just shows how much effort and thought goes into making this movie. The narrative itself can be a little meandering. And I know that puts off a lot of people. Like, for instance, the Harley Quinn chapter doesn't involve any other member of the Suicide Squad. It's just her. It is kind of annoying that you could kind of chop her out of the movie and it wouldn't necessarily affect it. Yeah. Her subplot with the president of the Corto Maltese, Mm -hmm. he wants to marry her because he admires her for some protracted reason. And then they hook up and then she kills him. And then the Suicide Squad have to stop what they're doing to go rescue her. But she's rescued herself because she's Harley Quinn. Feels a bit much. But I did not hate any moment in that sequence. And it fits within the story. And it doesn't derail it. So I wasn't complaining at all. In fact, it's Margot Robbie. She's one of the higher ups at Warner Brothers right now in terms of uh, producing capacity. They're going to give her a little extra screen time over everybody else. She is amazing in that role. She really is. This is. It's hard to think this is only her third time as Harley Quinn. Yeah. It, does, it seems like she's been doing the part for so long, like she was mm-hmm. born in it. But beyond that, I will say that the Suicide Squad, in terms of first impressions, I've already seen it twice. I cannot remember the last time I saw a movie for the second time so soon after I saw it the first. Yeah. I think the last time that happened was for The Last Jedi. Mm. Yeah, because we saw it in theaters and then we went and saw it in theaters again. Yeah, same I weekend, was, I think, wasn't yeah, it? it was. Yeah. So yeah, watching Suicide Squad the second time around, it hit harder. James Gunn's a hell of a filmmaker. I'm glad it's here. So, MJ, let's talk about our favorite moments of the movie. Okay. Do you have a favorite? All the Harley Quinn stuff. All the Harley Quinn (laughs) stuff. Sure, 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 sure. The finale sequence involving Starro was also pretty enjoyable. So goddamn cool. I mean, I wanted so much more of the Thinker and Starro, but what I got was more than enough. Yeah, and seeing a giant Starro rampaging through a city, pretty fun. Starro is an impressive visual for the movie Mm -hmm. and it's also a really good capper to the movie a lot of the time these dc movies tend to fall flat in the third act or the final part of the film yes almost all of them without exception do this this movie gets better the closer it gets towards the ending because all the surviving characters and this movie has quite a body count by the way Mm -hmm. but all the surviving characters that make it towards the end they come to a realization about their mission about themselves individually what they mean as a unit they all come together and they all come out on top for the most part i don't know gun doesn't really give harley much of an arc but it's fine harley quinn has one of the biggest epiphanies in the movie but she had that epiphany already in birds of prey i guess so I guess so, but like she's like cementing it now. Like she caught herself backsliding and she righted the ship. A man had to die for that to happen. 
I have really bad taste in men, so if they start talking about killing kids and shit, you know, I gotta I gotta do the only sensible thing, which is to murder them. So sorry, R.I.P. you and your magnificent cock, or whatever she was talking about. But like that was a really good scene for her, and it happens in the middle of the movie instead of at the end with everybody else. But she's already what she achieves in the at the end of the movie, and this is a very Harley Quinn thing to achieve in terms of an arc is to figure out what the fuck she's supposed to do with that javelin that yeah. she inherits from Javelin at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, but it doesn't really affect the outcome of the movie. But it's fine. It's a decisive factor in the battle against Sorrow the Conqueror. <sighs> they would have done it without it. I, I don't. I, I don't I'm think sure. it was a linchpin. Yeah, Starro's got a pretty weak defense system if you could just, like, poke the eyeball out and that's the end of that. But my god, when she takes that dive with the javelin and I thought she was going to, like, jam it into the eyeball, she went right for a swim Mm -hmm. inside the iris of Starro the Conqueror. That was the craziest shit. I feel like delirium every time I try to think of what that liquid is called. Aqueous, aqueous something. It's fine. But that was a line from Sandman when delirium is trying to think of the word for the the goo inside your eyeballs. Oh, there you go. That's funny. So what do you think about Idris Elba in this movie? For me, I feel like Idris Elba probably has a really crappy agent. Like, for instance, he's going to be Knuckles in the new Sonic the Hedgehog movie. So he is. Instead of being the next James Bond. Like, what the fuck is happening here? But anyway, this is almost all the way Idris Elba's movie. He's fantastic in it. No, I, I agree. He's great. The whole sequence where he gets into an argument with his daughter over the plated glass. They're screaming at each other. That was probably one of the greatest arguments I've seen in any superhero movie, bar none. During that scene, I remember leaning over to you and being like, what happened to Stringer Bell's accent? Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know what? I'm glad that he got to keep his British accent. Oh, wait, me too. I, yeah. That was just a silly joke. It allowed Idris Elba to be more Idris Elba. Mm-hmm. He's very charismatic. He knows how to hold himself and carry himself through a sequence. Every shot he's in, he looks like the hero of the story, even though he's kind of a bad dude. And his interactions with John Cena are A+. John Cena, I can't help but kind of giggle when I see him on screen. Yeah. Even more so when you see him in his tidy whities Do you think he was stuffing? I think so. <laughs> you think there was like some sort of padding with to the, accentuate? With the amount of steroids that man has probably yeah, done. That's yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But also, John Cena's thighs. Good God. Yeah. He's still in shape. Yeah. Yeah. John Cena's thighs. God. What did you think about the plot twist in the movie where Cena is like a secret mole for Waller to make sure that Project Starfish never leaves the island of the Corto Maltese? Even though Rick Flagg is like, the American people deserve to know everything that happened here and blah, 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 and Peacemaker ends up having to kill him. It's a, it's a good addition, and it gives the movie a little bit of a conscience, a little bit of a social awareness in its critique of American imperialism, which I appreciated. It also makes me start screaming at the movie because I have so much invested in both these characters, Peacemaker and Rick Flagg. I like them both so much, and now they're trying to kill each other. I'm like, oh, I don't know who to root for, mm-hmm. and that is good filmmaking. Yeah. Well, like, the first Suicide Squad movie, I don't think anybody would have cared. Yeah. <laughs> it was killed. In fact, I had to remind myself, I was like, did Rick Flagg make it at the end of that movie? And I was like, oh yeah, June Moon died. Mm-hmm. Her heart got ripped out. Which is a funny parallel to those two movies. June Moon, who was Rick Flagg's girlfriend, became the Enchantress. Mm-hmm. They had to kill the Enchantress. They had to rip her heart out. Her heart's out! We can end this! Remember that line? Mm-hmm. And in this movie, we get like a zoom-in shot of Peacemaker shoving a piece of toilet porcelain through his chest into his heart. And we see his heart going into cardiac arrest and blood pumping out. It's shocking. Yeah, because at first, like, oh, wait, no, he's just stabbed. He could be okay. He could be okay. And then... 
nope. x-ray zoom in on the heart slowing down and leaking blood it's like oh okay and we know that peacemaker's got an hbo max show coming up do you think his murder of rick flag is going to factor into the story at all or do you think peacemaker's just going to chart that up as another day at the office i don't know i guess we'll find out he's that kind of dude you know yeah. The only time where he starts getting serious about his gig is when Bloodsport shows up. Awesome sequence, by the way, because it, that sequence with Flag and Peacemaker ends with him training a gun on Ratcatcher 2. Like, sorry, I'm thorough. I got to kill you now. And then we cut back three minutes or eight minutes earlier. And that sequence ends with Idris Elba crashing down the silo. Yeah. <laughs> on his feet. Yeah. And then he finally crashes and it's that awesome superhero shot of him just like dust raining down him and he's like trying to realize his new surroundings and he zeroes in on john cena pointing his giant fuck you gun at Ratcatcher 2 and she's crying and those two have had like this really strong connection the entire movie because while he accuses Ratcatcher 2 of having daddy issues he's got serious daughter issues their relationship is one of the strong points of the movie it's it's very good and cute that moment in the movie made my heart leap out of my chest Ratcatcher 2 i'd like to talk about her for a sec all right The inclusion of Taika Waititi as her dad, her dear departed dad, was great. I didn't count on Taika Waititi making me cry. Like, when I was walking into the Suicide Squad, I thought I was just going to have a good time. I Mm -hmm. didn't count on getting choked up in this movie. But I did a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And that whole Ratcatcher, Ratcatcher 2 story where Ratcatcher 2 lost her dad because of a heroin addiction. And, like, they were homeless, but they survived because they controlled rats and they kept them warm over the winter. And they stole things like food, stuff like that for them to survive. Oh, they also stole from banks. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you're wondering the entire movie, why Ratcatcher 2? Why does she matter? How will she factor into the mission by the end of the movie, right? And while you're wondering this, James Gunn answers the question for you. She's delivering all these rats from out of their various little nooks and crannies to attack Starro. A sea of rats. A sea of rats. I hadn't seen anything like that since that game, A Plague Tale. Oh, yeah. Remember that with all the rats and the Mm -hmm. French kids? Yeah. Anyway, so she's dumping all these rats onto Starro, and then she has this moment where she flashes back to this moment with her dad, Taika Waititi. Mm -hmm. And she goes, why rats, papa? And he says, rats are the most despised creatures in all the world. But if they have a purpose, then so do we all. And then it cuts right back to her. And the music hit me just at that moment. It was so cute. That whole sequence right there. I was like, all right, this movie's great. 100%. There's no going back. It's moments like that that stick. It reminded me of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, where Michael Rooker's Yondu is doing, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. That's all well and good. But there's that moment where he rescues Peter Quill. And, you know, there comes this moment of realization where... Yes, Kurt Russell was Peter Quill's dad, Ego the Living Planet. But Yondu was his daddy. Exactly. He's like, (laughs) he may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. That moment hits so hard in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 because that's ostensibly what Peter Quill's been chasing after his entire life, his own family. And he didn't realize that he had one until it was almost all the way too late. And then Yondu, of course, dies. Spoilers for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. But it all comes back around together in terms of the themes of growth and growing up, even though you are an impetuous little man-child. Gunn knows his themes, and Gunn knows how to wield his characters to accentuate those themes. I thought this movie was terrific. But I think it's funny you brought up the daddy issues, because there's some mommy issues in this movie, too. Oh, for sure. Polka Dot Man uh, (laughs) is super wildly crazy, like the craziest of all the bunch. Yes. Uh, And imagines all of his foes that he's about to kill as being his mother. So we, the audience, see whoever this actress is portraying everyone, and at one point portraying Starro as a rampaging, attacking Polka Dot's mom. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like to scale. Mm-hmm. The size of Starro is the size of his mother, who experimented on him and his other siblings, who for the most part didn't make it out alive. Seems seems like a very bad person. But it kind of bums me out that he used the daddy issues for the emotional connection and the mommy issues for the joke. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll do the mommy issues for emotional connection later. Well, the mommy issues were Guardians Volume 1. I mean, in a Suicide Squad <laughs> oh, okay, movie. Okay, I gotcha. Understood. Yeah. David Dutzmalkian, man. That kid is awesome in this movie. I just saw a photo the other day that apparently he adopted a cat while they were filming. Uh-huh. And the costume designer of the Suicide Squad made a little polka dot man <laughs> costume for the cat. And Desmalchin also talked about how, because he was writing that Count Crowley series, that comic book series. For Dark Horse, yeah. while, while they were doing the Suicide Squad, that the cast of the movie, his fellow actors were so supportive of the comic book and margot robbie like posted about it on right. her socials and just all the, it was so cute it was so sweet to see that like the cast became such a like a family yeah with this cohesive unit it's nice to hear stories like that about the making of this suicide squad compared to the other suicide squad uh-huh. where when you heard back behind the scenes stories of the cast it's jared leto sending used condoms and shotgun shells to his castmates yeah. you get the idea that maybe a lot of them didn't probably get along Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. nice to see that everyone got along. I think James Gunn foments that kind of environment. It seemed like a much better filming environment in general. That's right. I agree. So, MJ, while I would love to continue talking about the Suicide Squad, we have the rest of the episode. So, closing out this conversation, how would you like to grade the Suicide Squad on a scale of 1 to 10? I would give it an 8. What is with you in the number 8? It's either 8 or 8.5 for everything. Because I generally like things unless I hate them. Oh, okay. And if I generally like something, it's at least an 8. Gotcha. That's all. That's fine. Just wondering. What about you? What's your score? Over on Letterboxd, they have a 5-star scale. Jared loves his Letterboxd. I live on Letterboxd. Y'all I spend look more up. time on Letterboxd than I do on Twitter, actually. Y'all should look him up on Letterboxd. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I'm easy to find. But on Letterboxd, I gave it 4 out of 5 stars. So the equivalent of that, I would say, is 8.5 to 9? Technically, the equivalent of that would be 8. Yes, you're right. So to go on a sliding scale, I'm I'm giving this a fucking 9. Yeah. Because that's what I say. Okay. This movie's awesome. It's the best DC movie I've seen since Wonder Woman. Okay. Which was the best DC movie I've seen since The Dark Knight. Speaking of Dark Knights, Dark Knight Returns is where the country of Corto Maltese was originally invented. That's right. And they put it in the first Batman movie, Batman 89. Vicky Vale was photographing, you know, some sort of genocide that was happening at the Corto Maltese. And Corto Maltese is actually named after a very well-known and respected European comic strip, Corto Maltese. No which kidding. Is, which is uh, written and drawn by Hugo Pratt, I believe. Ah, how do you like that? No, I did not know that. Yeah. Good for you, bringing the trivia to casual Wednesdays, MJ. Well, <laughs> done all right we got to move on ready for the top five i am all right mj this week i've got the three you've got the two i'm gonna take it from here we're gonna do the rapid fire top five like we've been doing the last couple of weeks are you ready yep all right so i'm gonna kick us off with an image title the silver coin now, we have hyped every issue of The Silver Coin on Casual Wednesdays so far. It's just that good. It's a horror anthology illustrated by Michael Walsh. But this week, MJ, this is a story that is written and illustrated by one Michael Walsh. How do you like that? I think it's great. And I think it's fitting that we should hype each issue because each one, you know, the creative team changes slightly. That's true. But also, they're great. So that makes it easier. Yeah. Um, Michael Walsh may have written and drawn it, but he also shares line credit with Gavin Fullerton with Colors by Tony Marie Griffin. 
doesn't have a letterer credit though. Hmm, Maybe weird. Walsh does his own letters? Could be. Some writers do. Anyway, if you like what Michael Walsh does with the silver coin and you like the movie The Vavitch, <laughs> The Witch, here's Michael Walsh's take on a very similar story. Check it out. The Silver Coin, number five, out this week from Image. That's my first pick, MJ. What's first for you? My first pick is Marvel's The Defenders, number one. First issue in a five-issue mini. The credits read Storytellers, Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez. Javier Rodriguez on the art, Al Ewing on the writing, but Storytellers, very cool. I like how they share that because illustrators are just as much storytellers as writers. Mm -hmm. Inks, Alvaro Lopez with Javier Rodriguez. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. This book is beautiful. If you've ever seen Javier Rodriguez's art. You know what you're in for. History of the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. And the issue, it's a great first issue. It's just Doctor Strange pulling together a new team of the Defenders that's consisting of the Masked Raider, the Silver Surfer, Harpy, and Cloud. It's going to be so much fun. It builds a lot on the Marvel Comics to number 1,000, so if you've read that and we're waiting for more continuation of it, it's right here. Defenders number one is my first pick of the week. What's your next pick, Jones? My next pick is a debut from DC and Milestone. Mm. Yet another one of these. Last week I talked about Icon and Rocket. This week I'm talking about Hardware, Season 1, Number 1. This one's written by Brandon Thomas, who we like very much. We do. Who wrote those Aquaman Future State tie-ins, amongst other things. And excellence. And excellence for Image Comics. Pencils by Dennis Cohen and inks by Bill Stankevich. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Chris Sotomayor is on colors and Rob Lee is on letters. If you, like me, think that the absence of Milestone from DC Comics over these last 20-odd years is a big mistake, I mean, they tried to bring him back in the mid-aughts. They did, they did. But they didn't put all their heart into it, Mm-mm. not the way they are now. Then you, like me, are in for a big treat. All the debuts have been great, but I think Hardware Season 1 Number 1 might be the best of the bunch so far. Ooh. It's really good. It's very propulsive. The hero is front and center from the very beginning. It lays the tracks to a really intriguing story, but it also blows shit up so good. Cohen and Sienkiewicz team are back, and they are better than ever. Hardware Season 1 Number 1 is out this week. I highly recommend it. Do not miss this. MJ, what is next for you? My next pick is a book from Behemoth Comics. What? Yeah, I don't usually recommend stuff from them, although they did do that really awesome. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night comic came out a couple months ago. But this one is called Cinnamon, and it's the first issue in a three-issue miniseries. That's the title of my favorite Dressy Bessie song. Ah, Uh, but it is written and drawn by Victoria Douglas, and I'm showing my cat ladiness in picking this because this whole story revolves around a cat. It's a cat, and she fantasizes about all these other things as she's... It's an anthropomorphic cat, though. No, it's not. It's, it's just... not? Is the cover lying to me? The cover is showing what the cat fantasizes herself as. Oh. She, she imagines, like, all these explosives being lined up when she's actually walking across a table with some glasses of water. Got it. It is adorable and super cute. The art's really fun and really bright. I highly recommend Cinnamon Number 1 from Behemoth this week. What's your last pick? All right, MJ. That's a weird pick. <laughs> It's super cute, though, I It's swear. fine, it's fine. My last pick this week is another debut from DC Comics. This is Batman 89, number one, holy shit. Written by the original Batman film screenwriter Sam Hamm. Illustrated by Joe Quinones. Colors by Leonardo Ito. And lettered by Clayton Cowles. We will talk more about Batman 89 right after the listener question of the week. But that wraps up our top five most anticipated issues of the week.
Every week, we take the social media to field a question from one of you, our listeners. Hit us up, info at doomrocket.com. Cashweds Podcast on Twitter. This week, Clyde Hall. Hello, Clyde. Hit us up on our Cashweds Podcast account on Twitter and asked us, I love N.K. Jemisin's Far Sector. Now, Black Panther Legends number 1 is coming out by Tochi Onibuchi. What fiction writer would you love to see tackle a comic book? Not necessarily an adaptation of a book they've written, but helming a miniseries with an existing main character or new member of an organization. What artists would you like to see tapped for such a project, and what character would you want them to use? What a great question. Thank you, Clyde. Yeah. MJ, I feel like this is more of a you question than a me question. Oh, 100%. You read a lot of books, and I mean an inordinate amount. I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. Yes, you do. And honestly, a lot of young adult writers have already been kind of making the trip over to the comics side of the road. This is not a new trend either. Prose writers make the jump to comics all the time. I mean, that's how Tom King got his career. Yeah. Uh, Scott Snyder actually wrote some prose before we started That's comics, right. too. That's right. But most recently, like, Sean and McGuire has jumped over and started writing Spider-Gwen slash Ghost Spider. Rainbow Rowell has been writing Runaways for a long time. Yes, and coming up soon, uh, Rebecca Rowanhorse is going to be writing a series about Echo. That's right. I enjoy seeing writers hop over from prose to comics, although it sometimes can be a little rocky at first when they figure out how to script as opposed to write prose, because right. there's definitely a difference. Some writers make it out okay, like N.K. Jemison did Far Sector, and that book was 100% fire. It was flawless. It was wild how good it was. Yeah. Some people just have that knack or just have read enough comics to understand the assignment, mm-hmm. as the children say. But the question still stands, MJ, what current prose writers or prose writers from the past who have yet to make the jump or never made the jump would you like to see write comics? I made a little list and I used writers who I love who are still alive and still young enough to actually want to write comics, yeah. not right. somebody who's like retired from writing. Yeah, I, I read a lot of stuff from like the 60s and 70s. So a lot of those writers are either dead or so old they don't want to write anymore. Right, right, right. But my first pick, this is coming off of a book that I'm currently reading, Naomi Novik on Supergirl. Okay, so what's Naomi Novik done? Well, the series that I'm reading right now is the Temeraire series, which is a series that takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. The main character is a pilot slash captain of a dragon. Yeah, that's right. They fly dragons instead of... Yes. Well, they didn't fly anything in the Napoleonic Correct. Wars. Correct, correct. But it, it, it brings aerial combat into the Napoleonic Wars, and the fact that it's a dragon is awesome. Why but, would you choose Supergirl? Well, the main character in the Temeraire series is best friends with his dragon and interacts with him a bunch. I would hope to have Naomi Novik bring in like Comet and Streaky and maybe have them hang out, talk a little bit, if that was possible in some sort of way. Would you dire wolf up these super pets? Would you make Crypto and Streaky like more formidable, like Battle Cat from He-Man or something? Maybe. Oh, man. That's adding even more layers to it. Well, they did that in the... Uh what was that action figure line DC did yes, very, yes, very briefly? Right. Primal Age, something like that? But I, I'm also picking Naomi Novik on Supergirl because of her other more recent novels, Uprooted and Spinning Silver, where she shows that she can write an amazing leading lady character. And Supergirl just so often does not have someone writing her the way they should as just this multi-leveled, very nuanced character. And Naomi Novik could do it, and I really want to see that happen. You have listed here Anne Leckie. Yes. Who's Anne Leckie? What does she write? Anne Leckie has uh, written like Ancillary Mercy and Ancillary Justice. And that series won her Hugo's, Nebulas, etc. She's also written the novel Providence and another novel called The Raven Tower. Sounds heavy sci-fi, MJ. Well, The Raven Tower was kind of more fantasy and pulled ever so slightly and subtly from Hamlet. Okay. Oh, I loved it so much. So you have Anne Leckie writing Fantastic Four here. Yes. Why? Because she can handle those big sci-fi ideas really, really well. How would she do with this roster of characters, a family unit like the Fantastic Four? She would do great. 
I'm just more thinking of the sci-fi aspect. I really think she'd be able to nail that cosmic shit, bring it in really well. You got one listed here that I like a lot, as yeah. I have actually read this author, Jeff Vandermeer. Yes. For Swamp Thing, the yes. writer of Annihilation writing Swamp Thing is inspired casting there, MJ. He's brought in an ecologically minded narrative into a lot of his works, but he adds this really spooky flavor to it. Oh, he knows how to tap into horror. Yeah. It's spooky. Read Annihilation if you haven't. That book's fucked up. But also also read Born, read the whole Annihilation trilogy. Mm-hmm. He would be such a well, great... Well, that's not called the Annihilation trilogy, is it? No, it's not. It's the Southern Reach trilogy. That's right. But people know it by Annihilation. Mm-hmm. No, it's fine. Mm-hmm. He would be fantastic on Swamp Thing. It would just be so good. But what about you? Do you have any authors you'd like to see make the trip over to comics? Well, you know me, MJ. I don't read a lot of books these days. I'm kind of a dunderhead that way. Well, you read a hell of a lot of comics. I do read a lot of comics. People only have so much time, you know? That's true. But I have been reading some prose lately. Mm -hmm. I just finished reading The Black Dahlia by James Elroy. Yeah. To my knowledge, James Elroy has never written a comic. He had The Black Dahlia adapted by David Fincher, of all people, and it was published in French. I have an English translation of it. It's not very good. <laughs> Maybe something was lost in the translation. Possibly. It's pretty bad. And it doesn't look very good either. <laughs> but if James Elroy, who's in his 70s and is probably retired and has his money and definitely does not need to slum it in the comic book industry. I but mean, if he does? ever. <laughs> <laughs> but if he felt so inclined, I wouldn't mind seeing him maybe do a Dick Tracy. A Dick Tracy written by James Elroy would be really interesting. Yeah. It would be a subversion of the character. Yeah. Something I don't really think has happened for that particular character. But also, I would love to see him write, say, The Spirit or The Question. Those would be really good options for James Elroy, considering he's very crime-minded. You like these old pulpy properties, huh? That's the kind of stuff I like, MJ. And and he would be a really good fit for those. I agree. James Elroy, like maybe 20, 30, or even 40 years ago, but, you know, he's still got something in him. Yeah? Great question, Clyde. Thanks for asking. MJ, did you enjoy that one? I did. You've got a bigger list than the one. Maybe you can do a posting on Twitter about it. Maybe, if anybody cares. Oh, MJ. So if you've got a question for us over here at Casual Wednesdays, we do tend to ramble, but ask anyway. Hit us up, info at doomrocket.com, Casual Podcast on Twitter, and you have our thanks. Yeah. All right, MJ, we are in the back matter for the first time in a couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. You know what that means? Yes. It is time for a flip through review. Yeah. This week, we are tackling Batman 89 number one. I really wanted to talk about this book. Mm-hmm. But also, partially, I wanted to put this in the episode because we have a listener named Alistair Matheson-Lynn who cannot listen to this week's episode because they do not have HBO Max in Australia where they hail and thus cannot watch the film and thus cannot listen to the majority of this episode. So I wanted to put a little bit of meat on this episode just for Alistair, who's been a big supporter of Casual Wednesdays. Hopefully you've read Batman 89 number one (laughs) so we can have a nice spoiler-filled conversation about that really quick. I'm glad we can have something for Allie to listen to. I agree. He's a very faithful listener. He really is. Yeah. We really appreciate you, Allie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Batman 89, number one, obviously tops off our top five most anticipated issues of the week. Also, probably one of my favorite comics that came out this month, possibly this year. It's really well done. And also, just as far as the sales go, I was pleasantly surprised to see how much at least our store ordered of it. Yeah. It was like close to the numbers we have on the Batman ongoing. The regular ongoing, which yeah. is nothing to sneeze at. Batman 89 is a passion project for Joe Quinones, who tried to pitch a similar tale to DC eons ago. Mm-hmm. And that artwork got posted online and it went viral. And a lot of people were really hungry for it. And DC wisely, finally, gave it the go-ahead. But one thing I did not count on them doing was attaching Sam Ham to the project. Yeah, that was a surprise. Not just a surprise, 
like that's overachieving like you did not have to go that hard like they got robert venditti to write the superman 78 book coming up very very shortly which i'm also very much looking forward to but this is the equivalent of bringing dick donner in on that book yeah and sam ham like dick donner both have written dc comics in the past sam ham wrote some detective comics right around the time batman got released so he's no stranger to the comics format and i'm sure he's a fan probably part of the reason why this reads so well it does the pages are really confining and tight. Like, Joe packs it in with the panel work, which reminds me of the architecture of Gotham City in the first Batman 89 movie, even more so when it got really more gonzo and German expressionistic in Batman Returns. Mm -hmm. But that's one thing about this is that it does take place after Batman Returns. That's right. That's an important thing to note. So technically, it kind of should be Batman 92. Yeah. But on Twitter... Joe said 89 was the more memorable date, and it, it makes was. more sense. It makes sense to me, and you get to use the original logo yeah. for the trade dress, which is gorgeous. My God. Like, I know I'm a mark for nostalgia. It's basically all I ever post on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But Jesus Christ, this thing's like weapons-grade Jared candy. Jared Stalgia. Jared Stalgia, yes. <laughs> so let's talk about the issue really quick, MJ. Okay. Joe models Barbara Gordon after Winona Ryder. He totally does, and it's delightful. There's a lot of Tim Burton verse uh -huh. uh, callbacks and Easter eggs. Oh, in yeah, here. yeah, yeah, yeah. The second page has a big Happy Halloween banner, and you can see the lady character from Mars Attacks back there. Yeah. You can see Lydia Dietz. Right. It's pretty delightful. It's, it's, it's fantastic all the way around. But we meet Barbara Gordon. She's on a date with her boyfriend. Fiance. Fiance, excuse me. Well, they become engaged during the sequence, but one Harvey Dent who was played by William December Williams in the first Batman movie uh -huh. and could have been Two-Face in Batman Forever if Warner Brothers had known what they were doing. And so we got Tommy Lee Jones slumming it for some reason. By the way, Tommy Lee Jones, easily the weakest part of Batman Forever. Oh. I mean, he has fun, but he has to be extra manic to even register beyond Jim Carrey. And well, he was really resentful of it because he could not sanction his buffoonery, you'll recall. Uh -huh. <laughs> so anyway, Barbara Gordon and Harvey Dent, they've been dating for a while. He feels confident in their relationship to propose marriage, even though right now Harvey Dent's got a real hate on for her dad. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Gordon and Batman have been operating in Gotham City for a while now, and its campaign on terror has inspired what it inspired in The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight movie, a bunch of Batman copycats. Mm -hmm. Joker has a bunch of copycats after his death. Crime is out of control in Gotham City, and it doesn't look like Batman and Commissioner Gordon are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And Harvey Dent's hate on for Gordon dwarfs in comparison to his hate on for Batman. That's right. Harvey Dent wants Batman gone. He thinks he's bad for the city, and he thinks that, in general, the graft and corruption of the GCPD and City Hall in Gotham City is bad enough. He's going to take it all on. Harvey Dent is the strongest character of Batman 89, which is something that I was not counting on. I really appreciated the attention spent on him. He actually goes back and visits like his old neighborhood. Which and... is Burnside. Yeah, yes, it's Burnside. <laughs> we see some of his family members and people he knew in his youth and how his new influence, his new position of power has changed him or maybe hasn't. Yeah. I really appreciated that he was the main character of this issue more than anybody else. Batman 89 isn't just some tie-in that looks good, mm -hmm. that harkens back to something that everybody loves for a quick cash grab. Yeah. This is a story. This is a story with consequences. This is a story that sets things up for bad shit to come. The reckoning between Harvey Dent and Batman's one thing, but also between Barbara, also between Commissioner Gordon. How is this world going to be able to withstand this kind of interior war? It's a good story, mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, this could have been a really cheap cash-in, and it's not. It's so, so good. Like I said earlier, Joe really packs the panels in. There's no white space in the story, barely at all. 
there's some in there, I think, just for relief for his drawing hand, probably. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, he gets the architecture right. Gotham is a very oppressive place. And when you're at street level, you are surrounded by a canyon of steel and concrete and glass. And that's what that feels like here. It should feel a little claustrophobic, you know? And it surely does. Also, his likenesses in this book are so good. He's always excelled at being able to do a likeness without making it look light box. Like he's just, yeah. you know, taking a still from another movie of the actor and drawing it in. Joe definitely has his own style. Oh, yeah. And he draws faces in his own Joe Quinones way. There is one panel of Batman where Bruce Wayne looks like he's got kind of a carrot top. He he looks like, <laughs> but he looks like joe drawing michael keaton it's true it's true and his michael keaton's got like a reed richards thing going on this is definitely an advancement in time but i'm not 100 percent on bruce wayne's hair in this story so far that's the one nitpick i have with this entire issue it's definitely got a fade going on with like not only gray on the sides but it's like shaved it looks like it's tapered of? a little bit yeah maybe. yeah all i know is is that when i saw michael goff in this story the michael goff alfred yes i started feeling things mm-hmm. so that nostalgic bit is definitely getting pricked by the story but the story itself is so damn good that I want to read all six issues of this, and I will buy this in trade when it comes out. I thought it interesting when you brought up the fact that it is very densely written. It feels like an older comic in that way. Maybe it really when, does. when Sam Hamm was more used to writing scripts, that's how comics were. Yeah. And the ending, I feel like, is much more of an older comic ending. It's a full page of panels, and it ends on a cliffhanger. You can do that, comic writers, you know. Not everything has to end with the fucking splash page. Jesus Christ. It's just funny because it didn't feel like it had ended because I'm not used to comics ending that way anymore. Mm -hmm. It just kind of feels like it stopped. And I was like, oh, but that's how a comic book ends. I got a stack of 90s Batman comics. I I can have you read if you want. That's okay. Oh, Jesus. How'd you feel about Joe Quinones' innovation of the Batman cowl? He gave him white lenses, which is something that the Batman movies never had. I think it's fine. I I don't pay as much attention to that kind of stuff as you. All right. Yeah. Wish I had somebody to talk about that kind of stuff with. Do you mind it? Did, did I you loved like it. it? Yeah. I think it's a great look. He doesn't have the lenses on the cover, though. I mean, it's a beautiful cover. I don't want the lenses on that image. But mm-hmm. inside, where the artwork is less painterly and more comic booky, it works. And it makes sense as far as the story goes. You want to evolve the costume slightly in a new iteration. It makes sense. How do you feel Barbara Gordon looking like Winona Ryder? I'm fine with it. Yeah? Yeah. Not worried she's going to steal things from the uh, GCPD evidence locker? If she does, so what? That's a 90s Winona Ryder joke. Oh. Remember? See, I, I try not to think about that because I only think the best of Winona. Well, now we've definitely confirmed that you're a better person than I am. <laughs> I love Winona Ryder, too. Do not get me wrong. I couldn't I couldn't help myself. Only thing that I'm thinking about is she's going to be such a short bad girl. She's so tiny. Yeah, she's very diminutive. Yeah. She could be the Frank Miller bad girl from All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder. She <laughs> yes. was very small. With those awesome earrings. Yeah. yeah. That Batgirl look was a good look. No, I have a, I have the action figure yeah. of it. It was awesome. I love that design. All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder is dog shit on every front. But the Batgirl design faultless. Except faultless. for the, except for the sex scenes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What do you mean, except for the sex scenes? I'm joking. Did you like those? <laughs> they, were, they were funny. Let's put it that way. So anyway, MJ, let's wrap this up with a grade. Batman 89, number one as a debut scale, one to ten. What do you give it? I give it a nine. Wow. Is this because I called you out on the 8.5 yes, number earlier? Yes, yeah. uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Got it. What about you? What's your score, Jared? Well, it's a solid 9.5 for me. Oh, my. This is almost a perfect debut. Almost all the way. You never give ratings that high. I'm rarely ever bowled over by anything from DC these days. So, you know, talking out of the side of my mouth. I'm really glad you liked it. I I had a feeling you would. Yes. 
sets the bar ridiculously high for Superman 78, but Wilfredo Torres, come on. That book's going to own as well. Mm -hmm. So what did you guys think about Batman 89 number one? Did you love it? Did you really love it? There's no way to hate this book. <laughs> Tell us what you thought about it at info at doomrocket.com or Casuets Podcast on Twitter. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got nothing, MJ. You want to get out of here? Yeah. All right, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> That's it. That's all the time we have for this week's Casual Wednesdays. Need more of the Sweepy Little Podcast in your life? Check out our episode archive via any good podcatcher or check us out over at DoomRocket.com. Rate, follow, subscribe, whatever you want to do, or tell us how we're doing with a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every single week. And while you're at it, look us up on Twitter at Casual Podcast. I'm at Jared Jones underscore MJ. Where can they find you? At Molly Jane underscore K. So until the day 2000 AD greenlights Judge Dread 95 for me, <laughs> I remain Jared. That's MJ over there. And from all of us here at DoomRocket.com, have a great new comic book day. I've got a pitch ready to go, MJ. You should send it along. Maybe I will. <laughs>